Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to... Uh, just go to the Lord in prayer to ask his guidance and direction as we open his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As the psalmist said, it is in your light that we see light. And even though we can come to understand many things within the framework of our experience, it is only when we bring those into subordination to what you have revealed in your word that we can accurately understand the nature of reality and the nature of our experience. Father, you've given us your word that we might learn to understand who you are, understand your grace, understand who we are as sinners desperately in need of salvation and as redeemed people who need to have our thinking uh, overhauled by the truth of your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study these things this morning, that we would be oriented to your authority, willing to submit our thoughts to your thoughts, and that as we come to evaluate these things in light of how the Holy Spirit brings it home in our own lives, that we would be willing to do uh, that which we need to do to apply the truth consistently in our thinking and in our living. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture teaches that every believer is in a battle. You are in a struggle from the moment you get up in the morning. Some of you, that's more of a struggle than others. <laughs> to the time that you go to bed at night. And sometimes when I talk about this and we use biblical terms like uh, struggle or wrestling or battling, people say, well, you know, my life's not such a battle. Things are going pretty well. Uh, well, the Bible says that we are 24-7 soldiers in a spiritual conflict. And because we deal with an internal enemy known as the sin nature and two external enemies known as uh, what the Bible calls worldliness or cosmic thinking and the devil, then there is constantly a battle. And the battle rages over everything in our life. There is no aspect of our life, there's no aspect of our relationships, 
There's no aspect of our thought life, our intellectual life, our professional life. There is no aspect of anything that we're involved in that isn't supposed to be brought under the authority of the Word of God. And that is the challenge for every believer in his life, his spiritual life, after salvation. Because even though you are saved and you are secure in that salvation and you have an eternal destiny that cannot be taken from you, that is only the beginning. That's why it's called a new birth. It's not the end. It's a beginning. And like a child, you need to learn. You need to learn about your new life. You need to learn about what has been done for you as a believer, what Christ did on the cross for you, and understanding it in all of its facets and dimensions, something we'll be studying and learning about into eternity because there's so much related to it, I believe, that that we will never exhaust the work of Christ or the gospel in this life in terms of what I facetiously call the full gospel. Not like the charismatics talk about the full gospel, but the full gospel in terms of the fact that the good news begins with the fact that Jesus died on the cross, and you can have eternal life by trusting in him and him alone. But all that that entails in terms of what we are given at the instant of salvation, that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and that affects every dimension of life. Now, in the last several weeks... We've been studying this whole doctrine of the angelic conflict. We started off with the fall of Satan. We looked at how the, there was an angelic rebellion at some time in eternity past, and one-third of the angels followed Satan in his revolt against God. We carried that through into the creation of man and how the creation of man fit within the overall uh, structure of the angelic conflict, that these are not just separate things, but that the very creation of man is integral to the resolution of the angelic conflict. And by resolution, I don't simply mean that it demonstrates God's integrity, it does that, uh, God's grace, it does that, but it also will bring to a conclusion the work of divine judgment on evil as it exists in the cosmos, the evil that was first introduced, the sin and evil first introduced by Satan and introduced a second time by Adam. And this is all judged in the tribulation period so that when we come to the end of that uh, period of time, that seven-year period of time that culminates in Revelation chapter 19 with the defeat of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the binding of Satan in uh, uh, the abyss for a thousand years, that this is uh, part of that resolution. But this it doesn't just have to do with this scope of history. It has to do with the place that you and I play in all of this, our role in the angelic conflict, that we are part of this cosmic conflict, we're part of this spiritual warfare, and as I pointed out, 1 Peter 5 teaches that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that you have a uh, sin nature that is inclined towards uh, 
rebellion against God, and that in the last few weeks we studied the topic of demon influence, and this is what the Bible calls worldliness or cosmic thinking. It is all of the thought forms generated by uh, by the creature to try to make life work apart from God. It includes religious viewpoints. It includes philosophical viewpoints. But all of this, basically, when you boil it all down, it follows the the, the two basic elements of Satan's thinking at the time of his fall, which is the assertion of independence or autonomy from God. The creature saying, I can make it work without you, God. I can find happiness. I can find meaning. I can make things work without you. In fact, without you, I can probably make things work better. That's the act of independence, that we think we can think, that we can deal with issues in your business, your profession, your marriage, your uh, parenting responsibilities. You think that you can take care of things in education, in just your own personal ethics, without necessarily being dependent upon God in every single thing. And yet, that's what is cosmic thinking, is this sense that there's areas of our life that we really don't have to bring into compliance under the authority of God and his word. The second aspect of cosmic thinking has to do with antagonism. For once the creature asserts his independence from God, his autonomy, he, it's not long before he begins to resent God and to be antagonistic to God, his authority, those who teach his word, those who uh, seek to uh, apply his word. So the thinking of the cosmic system is based on these two uh, foundation stones, as it were, of autonomy and antagonism. This is the struggle that we face in life is because from the time you were born and you began to operate on your sin nature because you didn't have any other options, so everything that you did from uh, the very beginning of your life until the time that you were saved was totally based on uh, your sin nature. You had no other option. And there's a, during that time, you, you're thinking in your soul like a spiritual vacuum, just sucked up all the thinking of the world, much more than you and I realize. We just attract this like uh, iron uh, fillings to a magnet. We just... Uh, suck up every uh, rationale, every rationalization, every justification that we can to somehow shore up our independence from God. But then you got saved. Now the issue is trying to unlearn all those bad thought habits, not just bad overt habits, but bad thought habits. Thought precedes action. And so the Apostle Paul emphasizes that this is our struggle. This is our battle. This is a war. And we never finish the war in this life. If you ever think that you've reached a plateau, you've reached a place where you can rest, then you've already sowed the seeds of your own uh, defeat because we never stop fighting the battle. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
I'm going to start to give us a little context in 10.2. Paul's really dealing with uh, the Corinthians and their ongoing problems of, of carnality. The Corinthians had, had lost the battle in all three arenas. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says they're carnal. They operate on the sin nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, they are still glorifying the wisdom of man instead of the wisdom of God. So they have lost the battle to uh, worldliness. They have lost the battle to the sin nature. And later on in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the, how they're still uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, but there's still this, uh, not that that was inherently wrong, but they are still involved in going into the temples and trying to justify this. And he says, don't you know that when you're worshiping idols, you're worshiping demons? So you know, they are failing at every step along along the way. When he writes Second Corinthians, they have responded to some of the challenges he presented to them in First uh, Corinthians, but not to all of them. And so he is dealing with some corrective aspects in First in Second Corinthians chapter ten. And in the midst of this, he uh, he just runs down a short rabbit trail. For those of you who like big words, that's called an anacoluthan. He just takes a little diversion at the end of the second verse. But I'll read the whole verse there so we get the context. He says, I ask that when I am present, I need not to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who, and this is where I want to start, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. And what he's talking about is that there are those in Corinth who are who are not believers and even those who are carnal Christians who are looking at Christianity and the doctrines that Paul has taught as if it's just another equal option to the plethora of options that they had with all the different gods in the Greek pantheon and all the different philosophical systems from the pre-Socratics to uh, Plato, Aristotle, all the way up to the Stoics and the Epicureans. And so for as far as these unbelievers uh, were concerned and some of the carnal Christians who are still operating on worldly thinking, the life of the believer, really just like anybody else, they just have a different philosophy like every other philosophy. It's not categorically different. And what he's arguing is, yes, the Christian life is categorically different. All the other religions, all the worldly philosophies are all wrong. Christianity is exclusively the only true thing. So the problem with these folks is they regard us as if what we're doing is just some other religious thing. But, he says, though we walk in the flesh, that is, though we live our life in a material body, in a material existence. That's uh, actually what he's emphasizing here. And the <clears throat> use of the term walk is a metaphor that's used throughout the Old Testament and New Testament to just represent our lifestyle, how we live. So you can just do a simple word substitution and insert the word live. That's what it's talking about is how we live. How we walk is how we live, and it incorporates everything from how we think to what we do. And so Paul says, for though we walk or though we live 
in the flesh, in our in a physical body, in the physical world, he says, we do not war, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, that word for according is based on a Greek preposition that means in accordance with a standard. In other words, there are standards, there are ideas, there are patterns, there are procedures that the world system has developed for handling the pressures, the difficulties, the challenges of life. And for those of you who never have problems or adversities because uh, you've imbibed the worldly system of uh, positive mental attitude, we'll just call them opportunities. But you see, the Bible says that, that we're constantly within the framework of this uh, struggle, that this is a battle, and we do not live life according to the same principles, the same procedures, the same problem-solving devices, however you want to say it. Our weapons, as he's going to say, our tools, the way in which we do things, not just what we do, but how we do it. You know, right thing done in the wrong way is wrong, so you've got to do not only the right thing, but you've got to do it the right way, which means you've got to think about it the right way and do it within the right framework of thought. And, and all this is just much more difficult than having to just uh, uh, just feel your way through Christianity. Christ, the Christian life is based on, on thought. It's based on rationality. It's based on understanding what God says and putting it into, into practice in the life. So Paul says, though we walk in the flesh meaning we live in this physical world, the principles of our warfare are not according to the flesh. And he uses a Greek verb there, stratuomai, uh, which has to do with the uh, lifestyle of a soldier. And there are many times in the New Testament when uh, Paul uses the metaphor of the military to picture the life of the Christian, he uses agricultural metaphors. He uses a number of different metaphors, but a more, one of the most common ones is that of a soldier. So that the principles of our battle, how we fight, is different from how unbelievers fight. We have to understand that. And he goes on to explain this a little more in verse 4. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That means they don't come from the flesh. And the flesh here means the sin nature. Sin nature has its own set of problem-solving devices. They're coping strategies. Uh, You hear people talk about learning stress management techniques. See, what the Bible says is that if uh, if you understand the promises of God and you're living on the basis of the promises of God and the provision of God and the power of the Holy Spirit then we don't live under our circumstances. We don't live under the struggle. We live on top of it. That doesn't mean that we don't get tired. We don't get weary in the process. But it means that uh, we go through these, uh, these various struggles and we can live on top of them. We don't just manage the problem. We have victory over it. We surmount it. It is... We are in control of our mental attitude, our circumstances, the details of our life, our uh, cousin so-and-so who we really can't stand, who's going to actually show up at Christmas, isn't going to control our mental attitude. Uh, 
you know, the problems that we have at work with other people or with just the fact that the business itself may seem to be struggling is not going to control our mental attitude. We're going to let the eternal truths of the Word of God define our mental attitude so that we can have real joy, genuine tranquility, and peace in the midst of negative circumstances, whatever uh, your negative circumstances are. So our weapons, the way we handle this, isn't the way that unbelievers handle things. We have a different set of problem-solving devices, what I call stress busters. And these stress busters encapsulate the spiritual life. So Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. Now, that's really not a good translation because when you add L-Y on the end of a word, that makes it an adverb, and you don't have an adverb in the Greek text. So it should be translated the power of God. It's a Greek word dunamis. It says, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but the power of God. We're relying not on our ability, our finite understanding, our finite power, our ability, but on the omnipotence of God. And the omnipotence of God works in conjunction with the omniscience of God so that he knows all the details of whatever the problem is that we face. He is able to supply us everything that we need through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, when he is filling us so that we are able to surmount these Difficulty. So Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not from the source of the flesh, that is the sin nature, but divinely powerful or the power of God for the destruction of fortresses. And this is the Greek word, akaroma, which refers literally to a stronghold, a defense, a fortification, but it's often used metaphorically for anything that is deeply entrenched in our thinking. These patterns, these habits that we developed from the time we were little kids to try to make life work, try to deal with unpleasant people, uh, unpleasant circumstances without depending on God, without stopping and rehearsing promises in our mind without reflecting on the attributes of God. So we have these these thought habits, these thought patterns that are uh, that are in our thinking that are deeply dredged. I mean, we have this this path that's just been uh, cut into our thinking. So that's our fallback default position that whenever something goes wrong, uh, we fall back, we lose our temper, we get angry at somebody, we gossip, we blame somebody else, we lie, whatever it is, we have all these strategies to avoid dealing with personal responsibility and personal problems. They are problems that focus on thought. They are the power of God for the uh, destruction of fortresses and Verse 5 says, we are destroying speculations. Actually, that word is in the verse 4 in the Greek, which is logismos there on the bottom of the screen. It has to do with thinking. So it's the power of God for the destruction of these entrenched ways of thinking. And so we are destroying these thought forms. 
That's what Paul is saying. These rationalizations, these speculations, it tells us that the battle in spiritual warfare is not a battle with external demons or with Satan on the outside, that the primary battlefield takes place between our ears. It's not outside of us. It's in our thinking. And our thinking can be either influenced by all the human viewpoint that we've absorbed over uh, the decades or can be influenced by the truth of God's word, and we have to exercise our volition. And so Paul says that we are destroying these speculations, and we have to do that a certain way. It's the same thing that he talks about in Romans 12, too, that we're not to be conformed to the world but transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're, we're trying to uh, remove human viewpoint thoughts, human viewpoint philosophies, human viewpoint attitudes, human viewpoint habits, and replace them with divine viewpoint habits, divine viewpoint thoughts, divine viewpoint procedures. And he recognizes that all of these human viewpoint thought systems are raised up against the knowledge of God. It's either one or the other. There's no neutral ground. You're either operating in dependence upon God or you're operating in uh, independence from God, one or the other. If you're dependent on God, you're operating on divine viewpoint, you're walking by means of the Spirit, and you're in a position where God's power is available to you to deal with any situation in life uh, and any thought in life. Uh, the Bible is a kind of learning the Bible, learning to think biblically isn't something that happens in a week or a day or a year or two, three years or four years. It's a lifetime process. In fact, you're still going to be learning about God and about uh, the all of his infinite wisdom when we are in our resurrection body because even though we are in resurrection body without a sin nature, we're still finite creatures with a finite mind, and God is infinite. So we will spend eternity uh, learning about God and learning a vast number of things that we can't even imagine right now. So Paul says that we're destroying these thought forms and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive for Christ. Now, let's just stop. That's, that's a verse many of us have heard many times. You've heard it repeated and, and um, it becomes familiar. When it becomes familiar, you lose the impact of it. And he says that these are, uh, we are to take every thought, not some thoughts, he's not, and he's not just talking about the kind of thought, but every thought, every, that applies to every area of intellectual activity. That talks about how you think about science. Science is simply the empirical study of God's creation. So how you think about science is going to be radically affected by whether you view it as just a cosmic accident or whether it's designed by God. The kind of God that you have is, again, going to impact how you think about science. It's going to affect how you think about uh, business. It's going, to think, uh, it's going to affect how you think about uh, literature, how you think about 
law, how you think about politics, how you think about uh, society, everything from marriage to family uh, to church, all of these things, anything that involves more than one human being involves society. The ultimate eternal society is the triune uh, Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity who existed from eternity past is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to say anything about society and social things, you have to start with the ultimate absolute social group, which is the Trinity. You don't start with studying created groups. This is what the problem with sociology. Soci- sociology as an academic discipline has its starting point with experience, studying what people do. And they extrapolate from what people, what they observe people do to principles. Well, because they don't understand who people are as being created in the image of God and that human society is patterned after the eternal divine template in the Trinity, then they can easily go astray. And so when you just think about something like sociology, sociology affects what? It affects marketing. It affects business strategy. It affects politics. It affects all kinds of things. So you can be involved in any number of professions, uh, from the legal profession even to business to marketing to uh, just any, anything, insurance, and there are many factors within uh, that particular area that derive from sociology and from psychology. See, you, you may not even realize it, but you're being taught strategies at work for how to handle problems in the office, uh, problems, interpersonal problems, uh, marketing strategies, and these things come out of philosophical systems. I remember back in the late 80s when I was pastoring up in Dallas, a guy came to me, and they were being taught, he was an employee of Southwestern Bell, and they were being taught uh, channeling as part of a New Age sensitivity training. Now, that's a pretty obvious fact, contrast with the Scripture. But a lot of the things that we get exposed to are not that obvious, and they're much more subtle. And you work for companies and corporations who have all kinds of ideas and people coming from all kinds of backgrounds, and they take a lot of ancient pagan practices and give them new uh, names that that have been uh, uh, sterilized and made to sound very technological and taught in a new package. The only solution to this is to really know the truth of God's word because we can't go out there and study every ick-ack and spasm that comes along. But but you can understand certain patterns. Used to be that people used. I always heard an example that well, the FBI when they were studying counterfeiters, they always studied real money, never studied what the counterfeiters did. As long as they knew what the genuine article looked like, then they could spot that which was false. That's not true. They study both. They study the art of the counterfeiter, and they study what the genuine article. Looks like. That's how you develop critical thinking skills. 
You don't develop critical thinking skills by always hearing the same person teach the same way, the same thing the same way. Because if you don't ever hear opposing viewpoints, you don't necessarily understand um, the differences or how to think. Uh, how to think clearly, you just get indoctrinated, you don't learn how to think. And so what the Bible teaches us is we have to learn how to think, and we have to think, take every thought captive for Christ. That's just exhausting. It's going to take your whole life. It's almost overwhelming. But you just do it like everything else in the Christian life, one week at a time, one Bible class at a time. And over the course of time, you begin to learn things and understand things and put things together, and you slowly, gradually learn to think biblically. That's the way it's been for, for every one of us. Of course, you can't do that if you show up for Bible class once a week on Sunday morning. You've been indoctrinated by the cosmic system 24-7 for 8, 10, 20, 30, 40 years before you ever knew there was an alternative. And after you're saved, for many people, they're still indoctrinated with the cosmic system, and it takes them uh, even more time before they get any solid biblical teaching. So to undo all of that mass brainwashing by the cosmic system, you have to go through an intensified course of study for the rest of your life in terms of how God thinks. And so that involves volition. It involves discipline. It involves uh, you're making priority decisions on a day-to-day basis as to how you're going to spend time, whether you're going to come home from work and watch uh, Oprah or Dr. Phil, or whether you're going to uh, come home and uh, listen to a uh, Bible lesson, listen to the scriptures, or read something, go over your notes, something that uh, challenges you to put your thinking uh, on the Word of God. So <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 10 puts our focus on thinking, that the objective is to take every thought captive for Christ. That is an internal operation. It is what we do internally in terms of our own thought forms. We also have some other things that we do in terms of the spiritual warfare related to uh, spiritual disciplines. And those are outlined under the uh, metaphor of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, and we will go into that passage next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged with the fact that, that we should never become complacent in our spiritual life. We should never think that we've arrived. We should never think that, that even though the, the battle may not be raging right now, that it may appear to be a cold war or a phony war, that nevertheless it's still a war. And this warfare continues. And we are soldiers in that conflict, and our field manual is your word. And it is your word that teaches us what our weapons are, teaches us how to use the weapons. It gives us a framework for thinking about every single detail in life. And yet this seems overwhelming, but it's not because we have the your word, and we have the Holy Spirit, and it is a process. That's why we call it progressive sanctification. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. When he was nailed on that cross, when the sky was darkened, when God the Father imputed to him every single sin in human history, and his thinking, he thought about each one of us, he knew every single sin, and he paid that penalty for every single sin you commit. There's no sin you'll commit that's too great for his grace that was left off the cross. He died for every sin. So that all that's left for you to do is simply accept it, to trust in him, to rely upon him as the one who took care of your sin so that you could have eternal life. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's never done that, that they would take this opportunity to put their trust in you. And God in his omniscience knows the instant you trust in him and at that moment you are You are the recipient of Christ's perfect righteousness. God declares you to be totally justified, and he gives you eternal life. You can never lose it. Father, we pray for the rest of us that having received your precious gift of eternal life and being new creatures in Christ, that we may learn to think as members of your royal family and learn to live as members of your royal family, and that your thinking would become our thinking, and your priorities would become our priorities. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. In his name, amen.